Good morning, everyone. Uh, today we will be continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to John 1. And today we're going to be reading verses 19 through 34. Our text today has us learning about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist talked about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as we gather today, we remember that uh, the Lamb metaphor is used throughout Scripture, not only of Jesus, but of us also. We've sang that a couple of times here recently, Psalm 23, that He is the shepherd, right? And then other Psalms say we are the sheep of His pasture. He is the good shepherd who protects us and cares for us, uh, despite being lost and wayward, despite us being weighed down by the things of the world or condemned by our past sins. We come today to hear the word of God and the word of one true shepherd. As one of the pastors of the church, I encourage you today to focus on how God would be leading you to respond to this word as we read it. So with that, please read with me. In John 1, we'll be reading verses 19 through 34. It says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. This is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. All right, would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, the great shepherd that has never lost any of his sheep, we are reminded that all of the sheep given to Christ uh, will come to him and will never be cast out. And yet you made Christ himself to be a lamb, the perfect lamb, the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. As we read, as we listen today, we ask that you'd let our hearts be tender to the voice of your spirit. And let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
to see how we are to live today and who we are to be. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the time-honored traditions that uh, still exists in the United States military is the recognition and respect given to people of higher ranks. Uh, here's, here's what I mean. It's customary that if someone of a higher rank passes by someone of a lower rank, the person with the lower rank is meant to say something to them, right? Like, good morning, good afternoon, maybe saluting if the context is right, you know, call these customs and courtesies. Uh, not greeting someone of a higher rank when they pass by you is likely to get you in trouble. And no one really wants to be in trouble, so when you see someone walking up to you and you don't know them, you immediately just begin looking for their rank. And God help you if it's someone that belongs to a different military service than you're a part of, because then they put their ranks like all over the place and you're like scanning to try to find it before they get too close to you. And so hopefully you don't mess anything up, but there's almost this sense of relief that occurs when you realize that the person walking up to you is the same rank as you. Because then you don't have to talk to them at all. You don't even have to acknowledge they exist. You just give a head nod, like a, hey, what's up, how's it going? Um, or, like in most cases, probably just ignore them completely. And so if they're not a higher rank than you are, it's like you don't have to acknowledge them. You don't even have to say they exist, almost. And it's kind of sad to admit that out loud, that sometimes we can just reduce someone's worth to their rank or to their status in life. And that doesn't just happen in the military, right? People in corporate America will open the door for the manager or for the CEO and then completely ignore the janitor. You know, if you're not better than me, if you don't make more money than me, then I don't even have to talk to you. I don't even have to acknowledge that you're there. And that's kind of messed up, right? However, if you're someone important, well then, yes, good morning, sir. How are you? Yes, right this way, ma'am. We recognize people with higher status and we ignore those without it. James, in the book of James, goes so far as to say, like, hey, you treat the, the rich and the wealthy like, great, to, hey, here's a chair, come on in, can I help you with anything? And then the poor guy, you're like, ah, just sit somewhere there in the, in the back. Like, this is a human nature problem. This is who we are. As we begin working our way through today's text, there's a similar vibe that I get with what happens to John the Baptist and the religious leaders of his day. John is a religious teacher that has been causing quite the stir in Israel, and people are starting to ask questions. And when the religious leaders send some people to him, they ask him a series of questions to figure out who he is. Questions like, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? <clears throat> and it's almost like they're asking, hey, are you one of these important guys that we're looking for? Because if you are one of these guys, um, well, then I guess we have to listen to you. We have to do something with you. But if you're not one of these guys, <clears throat> we're not really sure. Like, we can just either ignore you or we can just run you out of town. But because of your value to us, John, your value is entirely dependent on who you are and the status of your ministry. You're either someone we have to listen to or you're someone we can ignore. We just need to find out which one it is, so we're gonna ask you some questions. And before we get into the specifics of the text here, I'll remind you that there are two Johns in this story. There's John the Baptist, and there, then there is the author of the book who is also named John. That's super confusing, 
So I'm going to do my best to either say John the Baptist or John the author when I'm talking about them. But John the Baptist will be our primary focus, but we do need to be aware of the other John, the author of this book, because the author of this book is a masterful writer. I love reading stuff from the author, John. I think it was St. Augustine that once said, uh, he's talking about the Gospel of John, the book that we're reading, and he said, the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And what he meant is that there is a simplicity to this book that is powerful, and it makes it super easy to read, right? It's shallow enough that a child's not going to drown in it, but yet there are equally parts that are so deep that you are never going to reach the bottom. It's deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And I say that because the, the way John frames this narrative, the, the way he asks questions, the way he represents what's happening is just a masterful bit of writing. Even from a literary perspective, like the language is magnificent and his mastery of the Old Testament is so impressive and so nuanced. Um, if you're not paying attention to like what's going on in the text, you're going to miss a lot. And it's easy to just kind of like hey, you know, pass by without seeing stuff. But John has like so many little Easter eggs like hidden throughout his writing it's hard to talk about all of them, but he's going to be quoting stuff like all the time, and I'll do my best to kind of point those out. But the only analogy I can give is like if you have a favorite band or a favorite artist, and they release a new album and give you new music, but then they're using like lyrics and themes from like past albums, if you're a real fan of the artist, you're probably going to catch it and be like, oh man, I see what they're doing there. Uh, if not, you might just say, oh, that's just really good music in and of itself. Um, but if you know what's going on, you're like, ah, oh, that's clever. I see what you did there. And that is what John is doing with his writing. There are a lot of phrases and indicators in this text where he's like reaching back and pulling stuff from the Old Testament. If you skim over it, you're still going to be impressed. But if you know what he's referencing, it does become more powerful. So our narrative today picks up when the religious leaders of the day, they send a number of representatives to this guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has become famous. I was reading this week about the area in which John is baptizing in our narrative. Uh, it's an area called Bethany. And I never knew this until this week, but did you know that Bethany is approximately 25 miles from the city of Jerusalem? Keep that in mind that we are in a society where there is no public transportation. There are no cars, there are no buses, there are no trains. People are walking 25 miles or more to hear this guy talk, walking 25 miles to listen to his teaching, to be baptized, this is a big deal. And it's not just like a couple of people are doing this. There are crowds, huge crowds. One of the other gospels, the gospel of Mark, gives a, another account of this story. He tells us in Mark 1.5, it says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist and we're being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, a little bit of hyperbole there, right? It's not everybody, but it's like, hey, pretty much all the town is going. Like, you got the majority of the city that's going out to hear this guy. Like, everybody's going. And you see spiritual revival in full swing, and the religious status quo is being shaken up to the point that the religious elite are like, okay, like, we need to figure out what's going on here. We need to figure out who this guy is and what he's doing. So they send some folks to kind of like scout it out, go ask John some questions, figure out what all the hype is about. 
And they go up to John and they start asking him some questions. This is John the Baptist. And John is very upfront with them from the very beginning. If you look in verse 20, straight out the gate, he tells them, look, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the guy you're looking for. You're looking for the Messiah, but I'm not him. You may be looking for someone to save you from Rome or to save you from sins, but I'm not the guy. And the author of the book even doubles down to make the point in verse 20. He says, he did not fail to confess, comma, but confessed freely. He says it twice. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely. I'm not the Messiah. Repeating it for emphasis. And that answer is probably a little disappointing if you just walk 25 miles to hear that. So then they decide, well, we're going to ask some other questions while we're here. They ask whether John is uh, Elijah, whether he's the prophet. And again, he says no. Now, I'm going to take it just a, a minute and review each of those terms, like Messiah, Elijah, prophet, because I want to make sure everyone's on the same page there, because those are important. There's an author named Jim Hamilton who has a commentary on the book of John that I was uh, reading from this week, and uh, he, do, he did a good job of bringing to light the idea that there is this desire within the, the nation of Israel for a Messiah, right? That had, this has been throughout the history of the Jewish people, that desire has been there. Even after the Old Testament scriptures are written, when they're complete, and before the New Testament starts, there's a thing called the intertestamental period. So between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning, there's a period there. Uh, it's a little more than 400 years. But the Israelites have just returned from being in captivity in Babylon for a long time. And they're still constantly being oppressed by invading armies and political forces around them. A couple weeks ago, we saw that when we were preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah. But that continues on. They're constantly plagued with internal issues of impure worship, internal division, external issues of like armies invading, frequent revolts, political uprising. It's like, and there's frequently occasions where like a hero will pop up for a minute to save the day. And it seems like this is the guy. It seems like he's the one that's going to usher in the kingdom, that he's the Messiah. But then he's not. And this cycle continues. There are a lot of these guys that pop up and everyone keeps saying, hey, maybe this guy is the Messiah. If you've ever heard of the book of Maccabees or with the writings of a guy named Josephus, you'll see this ebb and flow of violence and heroism in Israel before the time of Christ. Heroes rising up and people thinking, hey, this is the Messiah. He's finally here. And it's no wonder this happens. The Old Testament scriptures are like chocked full of promises about this guy named the Messiah. And everyone's just like itching, waiting for him to appear. And with every military battle won, with every successful leader that emerges, the same question comes up. This might be the guy. John knows that he thinks that, well, they, that they think he's the Messiah. And, and I think that's why he comes out so strong in the beginning. I'm not the Messiah. You could even read verses 19 and 20 to infer that he didn't even wait until they asked the question. Never said they asked the question. He just comes right out and says it. He just blurts it out. It's like, hey, I know you're looking for the Messiah, but I'm not him. Well, if you're not the Messiah, or what about one of these other guys we're waiting for? The next person they ask him about is a guy named Elijah. Are you Elijah? And Elijah is one of the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. I mean, the miracles that God did through Elijah are phenomenal. People being brought back to life. There's this showdown with a bunch of other prophets where fire comes down from heaven and kills a bunch of guys. I mean, and those are just like a couple of the things that happened. 
But of particular significance to this passage is that Elijah is recorded to have never died. In 2 Kings chapter 2, we are told that God sends down a chariot of fire from heaven and picks up Elijah while he's still alive and takes him to heaven so that he never sees death. And then there's another passage in Malachi that talks about Elijah coming again because they think it's like, oh, Elijah's still alive. He's going to come back. And it says in Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, that behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we see Elijah's not dead, and then a, a prophecy that says, hey, Elijah's going to come back one day. And he's going to come back before the Messiah comes. So the scriptures talk about this idea that before the Messiah, Elijah's going to show up again. So, well, if you're not the Messiah, what about, what about Elijah? Are you the guy who comes before the Messiah? The other gospels make this point even clearer when it, it seems like uh, John is dressed like Elijah and he's acting like Elijah. And so like everyone just kind of asks, it's like, oh, you know, if the shoe fits, shoe fits, maybe this is Elijah. And another interesting connection when Elijah is taken up by God and taken to heaven, he's actually on the east side of the Jordan River when that happens. And coincidentally, it's on the east side of the Jordan River in verse 28 where John is baptizing. He said he was on the other side of the Jordan. Once again, a strong connection to Elijah. Hey, this is where Elijah left off, and now it looks like Elijah's back. But John says, no, I'm, I'm not him. Yes, Elijah is coming before the Messiah, but I'm not Elijah. So you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah. The last thing they ask is, hey, are you the prophet? And you don't have to turn there, but there's a, there's a text in Deuteronomy 18 that kind of introduces this idea of the prophet. Who is the prophet? There's a prophecy that a prophet would arise from among the Jewish people, and this prophet would lead the Israelites. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following. It's Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Uh, this is written by Moses, one of the other two greatest prophets of Israel. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me from among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, You are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak in my word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the names of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So the Jews are looking for this prophet that would come with power and lead the people the prophet would speak and people would listen. This prophet is going to unite the country around a message, a true prophet of God. So the question is, John, are you this guy? You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And again, he says, no, I'm not the prophet. And I'm sure by now that these guys feel like this trip has kind of been a waste. But they ask one other question in verse 22. They say, okay, we get it, you're none of these guys, but give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. 
What do you say about yourself? Look, man, we just walked 25 miles to get here. Like, we got to walk 25 miles back. Like, what do we take back to the people who sent us? Who are you? So John the Baptist answers in verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And this is a quotation that comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, which I'll read for you. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we've got this voice in the wilderness preparing for the way of the Lord. There's kind of like an echo passage in Malachi 3 where... Uh, the prophet says, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before you. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the prophet says that this messenger will prepare the way before God. God himself is coming. And the messenger is here to announce that God is coming. So in saying that he is this messenger, John the Baptist he might not be saying he's the Messiah, but he's saying that the Messiah is right around the corner. And this seems to be almost a distraction for the ones giving the question because they seem to just ignore John's response. And then they seem to move on to a question that is irrelevant in comparison. John just told them that the Messiah is about to arrive and he's the guy that's announcing his coming. And it's like they're saying, oh, yes, yes, yes. You're coming before the Messiah. Interesting story. Uh, but hey, how come you're baptizing people? Like, why are you worried about baptism? Did you hear what I just told you? Like, the Messiah is coming. I'm announcing his message. I'm proclaiming the message of repentance. And it's amazing that they just, like, overlook that and ask a different question. John is baptizing because he's preparing the way for the Messiah that you want to see. But they ignore it. And I love the way John responds as they, as they ask the question because it's, it's almost like he doesn't answer their question at all if you're looking at it. If you look at verse 24, they ask him, well, if you're not any of these guys, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? And an appropriate response from a Western perspective would be, you've asked why I baptize. The reason I baptize is for reason A. The reason I baptize is for reason B. The reason I baptize is for reason C. Here's a neat and orderly outline of my response that perfectly answers your question. But John the Baptist doesn't do that. He actually almost sidesteps the question at first glance, and he answers a question that they don't seem to be asking at all. As I was studying this week, I found myself actually kind of getting a little frustrated with John's response, because I really don't like when people don't answer questions. Like, we've all seen enough political debates to know when someone isn't answering a question that they were just asked. When I try to like hide something, and that stuff drives me nuts. So when I see this, at first, when I was studying, I was getting a little irritated. 
until I started researching more and figuring out what was going on. So let me give you an illustration that I think will help clear this up. I had a conversation recently with a friend and somehow, I don't, I don't remember how, somehow our conversation came back to the movie iRobot, which is a sci-fi movie from 2004. It's like set in this technologically advanced future where uh, like robots are all running all over the place. Uh, but the main character of the movie is a detective that's assigned to investigate the death of a famous scientist. And what makes the death of this scientist really interesting is that the scientist has left a hologram of himself, right? It's a hologram of the dead scientist that can like interact and answer questions. And the hologram will talk to you and it will answer a set of predetermined questions. So if you ask certain questions, the hologram will give you the answer to those questions. So the detective begins to ask the hologram questions, and if the hologram is able to answer the question, it will do so, but if the hologram does not have an answer for the question, it responds by saying something like, I'm sorry, my responses are limited, you must ask the right question. So in essence, the hologram is saying, I can only answer certain questions, and the one you just asked isn't one of them. Well, anyway, the plot continues to build in the movie, and the detective finally asks the question that will put him on the right path to solving the murder. And when the detective asks this question, the hologram kind of smirks and responds by saying, that detective is the right question. And then the hologram turns off. And it's like the hologram of the scientist is saying, there are a lot of wrong questions and I can't answer those, but there is a right question that you need to ask. Those other questions that you're asking, they're not gonna help you get any closer to the truth. But when you ask the right question, ah, that detective is the right question. As the Pharisees barrage John the Baptist with questions about his authority and why he baptizes, his response almost mirrors the same idea of this movie. It's like, you may be asking questions about my authority, but you're asking the wrong question, John is saying. You shouldn't be asking about me at all. The right question doesn't involve John the Baptist. The right question isn't about what John is doing, but rather it is about who John is doing it for. John the Baptist pivots his answer to the right response. He acknowledges, yes, I do baptize with water, but there is one coming that you don't know. And I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. John the Baptist doesn't even say why he baptizes. He just turns the answer to reflect on Jesus, the focus of where the question should have been in the first place. We'll see later in this book that John the Baptist will tell others, look to Jesus. He will say about his own life and ministry that he, being Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's like he's saying, stop looking at me and look at Jesus. Look at the one that is coming. He's the groom. I'm just the best man. I'm like the supporting cast. I'm just the opening act, but he's the main performance. If you think baptizing with water 
is the talk of the town, wait until you see what he baptizes people with. Because he's going to baptize people with the Spirit of God himself. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and John sees him. He speaks loudly and says, here he is. Here's the one I was talking about, the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Behold, look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is a reference to to the sacrificial system where an innocent lamb would bear the sins of the people. A lamb was put to death to cover the sins of the people. But until now, that lamb had never been equated with a person. And John clearly makes that connection, though. He says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just of Israel, the world. Not just for now, but forever. Your sin, my sin, every act of rebellion we've ever committed against God, and every unloving thought or action against our fellow man, this is the sin he came to take away. Every unjust decision, every lustful thought, every selfish motivation, it says he has come to take this away, the sin of the world. You've been waiting for him. You've been looking for him. And the reason John came baptizing was so that he could be made known, according to verse 31. And the identity of this man is solidified by this miraculous sign of the Spirit of God coming down in bodily form as a dove to rest upon Jesus. Verse 26 emphasized the fact that the people did not recognize Jesus for who he really was. John says, he's standing among you, but you don't know him. He's right in front of you now, but you don't see him. And that's not because he's hiding, but because you have been blinded. So John points it out all the more clearly. Here he is. Behold the Lamb of God, the man who will lead us, the man who will bring forgiveness of sins, the one that's going to save his people. Behold, here he is. But they did not know him. And I wonder if we are any better. So what do we do with this text before us? Do you want to just like wash it up as a nice sermon about a nice man who came to prepare the way of Jesus? Or do you stop and let a more sobering reality take its place? Do you stop to think that the reason John the Baptist was so willing to point people to Jesus was because he had seen something so wonderful and so glorious that he couldn't help but point others to it? A few weeks ago when we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, we were talking about love, and we mentioned how pride is the opposite of love. Pride looks inward, but love looks outward. It would have been easy for John to talk about himself, right? When they asked about his ministry, I mean, look at the crowds, look at the success, look at the popularity, look at all of these people listening to me on the shore of the Jordan. Yes, Pharisees, come and ask your questions about what I'm doing right and how successful my ministry is, but that doesn't happen here because John's sight is set on something better. In fact, his entire ministry is set up on these grounds. If you look back in John 1, from what we taught last week, it says in verse 7 why he came. 
The gospel writer says, John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Why did John come? Why is he doing all this stuff in the wilderness? It's right there, to point to Jesus, to be a witness of the light that is coming. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, the people are ready to accept him, ready to leave John for something better. And from the perspective of John, how does it feel knowing that your only purpose in life is to build some really great ministry and then give it to somebody else? Well, I would argue that this should not be an unfamiliar thought to any of us, because that is what we are all called to do. Unless Christ returns, all of us will turn over our life's work to the people who will come after us. More than that, our ministries and work are never really about us anyway. They're only about how we can use our influence and use our gifts to say, behold the Lamb of God. I don't look at me, look at Jesus. I can't give you life, but he can, right? I can't save a relationship, but he can. I can't help you with your job or help you with the stress of life. I can't give you eternal life, but he can. Because I'm only human. I'm bound by time. I'm bound by resources. And let me tell you something. Every single person in every church you're ever a part of will let you down at some point in life. Not that people mean to do that, but it's just that none of us are perfect. We're looking for perfect people. We're looking for perfect pastors, perfect friends, perfect co-workers, perfect family members, and we're not going to find them because we will never be perfect. But what we can do, and what I hope we are doing, is pointing you and pointing those with whom we know back to the one who is perfect. That is what John was created for. That is what we are all created for, is pointing people away from ourselves and back to Jesus. Even the author of this book acknowledges it. At the very end of the book, after spending all of this time and all of this energy to write this book, he says in chapter 20, it's John 20, verse 30, he says, all of this has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the goal. Our desire is that what we say and what we do will point people to Jesus so that they can believe in him and that in believing in him, they would have life because there isn't life anywhere else. If we can say something or do something that will enable people to move closer to that goal, closer to knowing Jesus, closer to making him known, then our work will have been worth it. For it's life that he brings, eternal life that goes beyond death, but also life here and now, a life framed around how humans were meant to live. That's in the service of God, right? As the architect of the human body, as the creator of the human soul, it's God alone who knows how best we are to live. So if you want to live a life that's not wasted, if you want to live a life to your greatest potential, the only way you can ever do that 
is if you are following after Christ and who Christ has made you to be. Abundant life is promised to all who are willing to die to themselves and live to Christ. Come to Jesus and live. John says again, behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And as Eddie read earlier in Revelation 5, this same Lamb, this Jesus, he's the Lamb that was slain, to whom belongs all glory and honor and praise. He's the ruler of nations that will bring all things to completion and perfection. We look not only backwards at what Christ has done, but we also look forward to what he will do in time to come. So while our musicians are coming to the stage, uh, I would ask you another couple of questions. Will you choose to recognize Jesus for who he is? Is he someone you will acknowledge? Or is he someone you think is of the same status as you are? Someone that you think you can ignore? If you do recognize him for who he is, are you willing to invest your life in pointing other people towards him? Pointing other people to the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, to the lamb who rules and reigns, to the one making a kingdom of saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. Behold the lamb of God. Look to him. Look to Jesus and live. Would you pray with me this morning? Great God in heaven, we know that Jesus was sent as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that takes away our sin, that takes away my sin. And when Satan would seek to condemn us, we are reminded that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray and ask that we would live our lives looking to Jesus and that the public witness of our time on earth would be marked by the redirecting of people's attention away from us to the place where it belongs. Like John the Baptist, let us point away from ourselves and to the one who is worthy.